Klass is an associate professor in global politics at University College London and a contributing writer for The Atlantic magazine. He's also the author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, and the very latest Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters, which is being released, I believe, January 23rd, in which I had the pleasure of reading over the past couple of days. Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. I'll say this about the book. It's extremely rare to read something that manages to shake the ground on which you're standing to make you feel um, that the way you see the world is being challenged. It's almost like a a little slap across the face or something. I, I got to be honest, at times it can make for a discomforting read a little bit. I remember going like, no way or stop it, you know, physically arguing with the book, like as if it was a person standing there challenging me with very provocative ideas. And that's probably, that's probably the ultimate compliment a nonfiction book can receive because it's so rare. I remember I had a similar reaction when I was reading Being You by the famous consciousness researcher, Anil Seth, who I was also lucky enough to host on the show. I know I'm going to, you know, remember the feeling of reading it three years from now. Uh, it was the same with Fluke. It did the same thing to me. Anyway, just wanted to share my that, very that is fresh reading impressions. No, that's, and that's, that's exactly what I was hoping would happen when I, when I, when I wrote this, because I mean, basically I, I sort of started writing the book because I thought that there's a lot of stuff about like the conventional worldview that is wrong, <laughs> which is an incredibly arrogant and ambitious thing to think um, that you can write a book that challenges how people think about themselves and how the world works. But, uh, lo and behold, that's what I've tried to do. So I appreciate your kind reaction to it. It's very nice of you to say. Are you ready for the reaction of some people who are probably going to get a tiny bit upset? Yeah. I mean, I think I wrote, I wrote the book in a way where I hope that I'm respectful of other people's ideas. Cause I, you know, one of the things that I, that a major theme in Fluke, as you know, is uncertainty, right? That, that's yes. sort of like, there's lots of stuff we don't know. So to write a book about uncertainty with extreme certainty about how the world works is a mistake, right? And so I was trying to sort of say, you know, that there's bits where, for example, I'm not religious, I don't believe in God. But like, you know, when I talk about religion in the book, I say, look, there's, there's lots of people who do believe in this. And so, you know, this is not part of the terrain of the book. So I'm going to leave it to the side rather than sort of being you know, uh, critical of people who have different viewpoints on religion and faith and so on. So that was the kind of thing where I've gotten some early feedback from, you know, people who've had advanced copies and so on. And and one person said something very nice, which said, I, I am religious. And I thought that this book engaged with these ideas in a very respectful um, way. So, you know, I, I'm also going to piss off a lot of social scientists because there's a book, uh, there's a oh, chapter, yeah. as you know, yeah. that's called The Emperor's New Equations, which is deliberately provocative um, about some of the flaws of social research. And so I don't think I'm going to be a hit at many <laughs> political political science conferences in the future. But, you know, such is the way of writing a book like this is you you want to challenge people. And if you don't, you know, then you're just sort of confirming people's existing beliefs and they've wasted however many hours reading what you wrote. Invites for conferences are going to get rescinded at the last exactly. minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the central pre premise of the book is this. The storybook version of the ordered world we tell ourselves we live in is wrong. The world we actually inhabit, our societies, and we ourselves are much more the result of and governed by chaos, chance events, and complete randomness. In short, by flukes. Would that be accurate? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think the reason why that is, uh, is because the world is extremely interconnected. So the, the sort of storybook reality worldview that, that you describe is not just that the world is extremely ordered and progresses according to sort of logical choices and decisions that people make, but also that we're in control of it. So in addition to the arbitrary and the accidental playing a much bigger role, the sort of underlying reason for that is because every action that we take has ramifications that are often invisible to us, but that affect the lives of others and the trajectories of our society. So that's the sort of idea where, you know, you always look for this neat story, which our brains, I mean, Anil Seth's, you know, work would, would touch on this as well, but like where our brains are, are pattern processing machines, basically. And so we find ordered rational, reasonable explanations for things when in fact, there's a lot of messiness um, in the rest of the world. And this is where I take issue with what some people, you know, very often there's a whole like realm of, of thought that says, separate the signal from the noise. And I, I hate that phrase because it suggests that the noise is unimportant. And what Fluke is trying to say is like, actually a lot of stuff that we care about happens in the noise, uh, the, the unexpected, the chance, the contingent and so on. If we take a step back and clear something basic first. What do you mean by a fluke? Great question. So <clears throat> what I'm talking about are sort of things that are unexpected, driven by apparent randomness, and that create contingency. Now, I'm going to explain that last word contingency, because honestly, if I could title the book anything without <laughs> regard for sales or whether someone would pick it up, I would have probably called it either contingency or why things happen, right? <laughs> Which is neither of those titles is going to be as exciting as fluke. So, you know, the publisher... Uh, wins out on that one. But contingency is basically, it's imagining like a fork in the road. Now we think about these things as, you know, forks in our, our lives, for example, where we make deliberate choices. The point I'm making is that the, the path we're on is forking constantly. And so we're constantly in contingent moments where, you know, turning left rather than right is changing your life, even though you're unaware of what the alternative could have been. And that's true for society as well. Now, the easiest way to explain contingency is with the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs, right? It's I put it in the first chapter of the book because it's a very obvious example of this, where if the asteroid had been delayed somehow by some unseen force by like three seconds, it would have missed Earth and dinosaurs wouldn't have probably died out. Mammals probably wouldn't have risen in the same way and humans wouldn't exist. So all of our existence, all human history, you know, is derived from this little accident in the cosmos. And if it hadn't happened, uh, we wouldn't be here. So that's contingency. And, and, and the idea is that it's constant, right? That this is something that's constantly happening. So a fluke is something where um, you get to this contingent moment and something arbitrary happens and it diverts your trajectory, basically. And what's convergence? If Great. we're sticking so, to, to big words for a moment. Yes, indeed. And, and this is the kind of stuff, you know, where <laughs> you're beholden to the terminology a little bit. But contingency and convergence, I think, are really useful ways of thinking about life. And I, I stole these terms from evolutionary biology and then tried to apply them to humans. Um, so contingency is the dinosaurs, as I say. Convergence is the opposite, right? It's the ordered progression of things. And the example I use in, in the book is an astonishing one, which is if you took the eye of an octopus and you took the eye of a human and you looked at both of them, they're actually extremely alike which is bizarre because there's been about 400 plus million years of evolutionary divergence between those two branches of the sort of species tree, right? We're on totally different tracks. We're very unrelated to them. Uh, and yet we have basically the same eye. And the reason for that is because there is order produced by the fact that there's pressures on things that work, right? And when things work, they survive. So the eye is very, very effective at 
providing a way to navigate the world. So it's evolved twice in these two very different lineages. And the same is true of flight, which has evolved four different times and so on. So convergence, if you apply it to humans, is to say, okay, let's imagine you hit your snooze button on Tuesday morning. If your life unfolds basically the same way, then that would be a convergent event. If your life is radically changed by the snooze button, then that would be a contingent event because everything hinged on, on that one choice. So what I'm trying to do is take this sort of world of evolutionary biology in that sense and say, like, how would we think about this in human society and in individual life stories? And I think it's actually a very useful framework that all of us understand when we think about our own lives. But when we apply it to, like, how did our societies become democracies, for example, all of it goes out the window and we just tell a very neat and tidy, cleaned up story where the contingency is written out. In the book, you keep emphasizing and you referenced that at the beginning of our conversation as well, the fact that we live in a mind-bogglingly interconnected world. Every little thing we do, the way we do it, every thought that enters our minds will have an effect on the world, even if we can't see it, like you just said, and in turn on other people as well. Yet we have constructed a society with an exactly opposite idea. We are individuals who can supposedly the story goes with enough hard work and talent, achieve everything we possibly set our minds on. And we can do all of that pretty much alone. The idea of the self-made man or self-made woman is the engine that drives our society. Why? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So this is, this is where, you know, I was really struggling when I was thinking about these ideas, because I was thinking this is so at odds with what uh, most people think about the way the world works. Um, you know, we're sold in Western modernity, and this is this is very unique to Western modernity, this idea of sort of control and individualism, right? So uh, a lot of self-help books, for example, I mean, if you take any self-help book off the shelf, it basically tells you that it's your fault that you're unhappy or poor, right? Like, the, because the, <laughs> that, that's, they don't put it in like those terms, right? But that's the implication when they say, if only you did these things, you would be rich and happy. It's like, okay, well, then why doesn't everyone do those things, right? Because <laughs> like, obviously, if it worked 100% of the time, then we'd all be rich and happy. And of course, that doesn't work. And, and I think it's because, you know, people want to have a solution to their problems that puts them fully in control. Now, I don't believe that we're totally out of control, right? I, I use this phrase, um, and it's, it's something that comes from the complexity science literature, but where you say, we control nothing, but we influence everything. And I think it's a much more useful way of thinking about your life. It doesn't mean you should stop striving that you don't have control. It means that, you know, and I think this is a beautiful truth, is that everything you do is important in some way. And I, you know, the the, the last third of the uh, of the subtitle is everything. Why everything we do matters. And I, I struggled with deciding on that term because I was like, oh, people are going to think this is some flippant or cute phrase. I mean it quite literally. I mean it exactly as what it says. I do not think there's anything any word, any action we do that has no effect. And that's because I think the world is so interconnected and our brains are so constantly changing from how we interact with the world that saying one word rather than another changes us or saying, or you know, turning left rather than right out of a, a shop means that you'll meet different people in the rest of your life potentially because you'll bump into someone or and, and that person will be affected. There's this endless interplay that we're totally blind to because we can't see the alternative path, right? And so when you start thinking that way, uh, it becomes really obvious that the sort of myth of control and self-determination that is part of the individualist Western worldview is just like 
as a factual matter, incorrect, right? Um, and the way I explain, I put this in the opening chapter of the book. You've 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 read this, but it's it, the 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 way I explain it to people that I think is actually quite intuitive is everybody I talk to accepts on its face the idea that if you travel back in time and tweak some small detail about the past, you know, ten thousand years ago or something like that, that you might accidentally delete yourself from the future, right? And the problem is that historical causality operates the same way, whether it's past, present, or future. So if that's true about the past, it's definitely true about the present. And that means that every single thing that we do in the present is shaping our futures. So, you know, I think there's one of the two things has to give, right? Either the idea about how time travel operates is wrong, which I don't believe, but, you know, that could be one possibility, or the logic is correct. And that means that every action we take in our daily lives actually has unforeseen consequences that may affect our futures and the lives of other people around us. Let's talk about the related idea of what you call the myth of a secret genius. Um, in our achievement society, capitalist world, we automatically assume that the richest people, folks like Elon Musk, are a bunch of secret geniuses. And as such, they deserve all their wealth and the power it brings them. Even more, it usually makes them impervious to any criticism. For example, if we stick with Elon Musk, because he's in the news yet again, he keeps coming up with these insanely dumb statements that are actively hurting his endeavors, as, as all advertisers are now running away from X or Twitter. And yet a lot of people are still convinced that he's just playing some sort of 4D chess and that you know we, regular idiots just don't understand his grand strategy. However, as you show in the book, again, we have it a bit backwards. Could you break down the almost mathematical fact that the richest people are not necessarily the most gifted ones? Yeah, so I think there's a few things, uh, some of which I didn't go into the book that, that, that I'll mention when it's talking about whether someone deserves their success, right? I mean, the first point is is a relatively obvious one, which is, you know, I think about, any successes I've had in life. And I didn't get to choose my brain. I didn't get to choose my parents. I didn't get to choose where I was born or my upbringing, all those things, which are huge factors. I mean, some of the largest factors in people's success are totally unchosen, right? So yeah, okay, I worked hard, but like, why did I work hard? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like I made a conscious decision as like a seven-year-old to be good at school. So the, the, the way we talk about success, I think is already backwards um, in, in the first place. The second thing, the myth of the secret genius idea, it draws from some research that I think is really important that was a collaboration of um, physicists and economists, draw, you know, complex systems researchers along with um, uh, an economist. And, and what they were basically looking at was like, let's, let's just make a fake world where we have a few crude variables, but we also are trying to chart what creates wealth, right? But in our world, we're going to assume that every so often there's an intervention that randomly helps or hurts someone. Right. And, and they're going to call it luck or misfortune. Right. And the idea, of course, is that luck by its very nature is random. So it's going to strike like lightning every so often. Now, the insight they have, which once you hear it is really obvious, but we never really discuss this as a society, is they say, look, if you've got eight billion people in the world, there's going to be a sort of standard distribution of talent. In other words, there's going to be some extremely talented people, but that's going to be a small number. There's going to be some extremely untalented people, again, a relatively small number. And most of us are going to be clustered closer to the middle, like a bell curve, right? right. And this is true. I mean, when you, when you chart abilities among humans, this is definitely true. Now, wealth is not normally distributed, 
right? So, you know, if you think about height, for example, you're, you're going to have people who are clustered around a certain set of heights. I mean, most people in the world are between, you know, I don't know, 4'10 and 6'5 or something like that. And beyond that, you're talking about some relatively small percentages. And so with wealth, it's different. You have a lot of people who are poor, right? I mean, the average person is living on, on a substantially lower salary than those who live in, in the rich West. And then you have people like Elon Musk who have over a hundred billion dollars. I mean, I don't know what his net worth is now after he destroyed Twitter, but it's um, you know it's less than it was. Anyway, the, the the point is that what they find in this simulation is that lightning, that luck aspect, is going to strike most often in the middle of the bell curve, which makes complete sense because the most people are there. So it's really rare for luck to hit the extremely talented. It's also really rare for luck to hit the, hit the extremely untalented. It mostly hits the people who are near the middle. So what they find is that as the luck hits those people, they actually get very rich. <laughs> and so uh, what this suggests is that, yes, talent plays a role, but actually luck plays a much bigger role for getting to the extremes. So there is a correlation between talent and success in some societies. But if you want to be super rich, you have to be both a little bit talented, but mostly you have to be really lucky. And this is something where we make the mistake because we only see the rich people and say, oh, wow, they must have deserved it. What we don't see are the extremely talented people who didn't hit success because they were unlucky. And we also don't see a lot of the people who are at the same level of talent as someone like Elon Musk and just never got lucky. And I think that's the point that you know is, is really important for societies to internalize because this myth-making around uber-wealthy people is so counterproductive in suggesting that he's just better than us, right? I mean, which is which is just false, basically. And I think that the Twitter debacle has sort of showed that because uh, he has not run that company successfully. What about hard work? Yeah, I mean, hard work obviously matters, right? I mean, I think going back to the first point I made, um, you know, whether someone works hard or not, I don't think is is totally a unconstrained choice that they have. That's just, you know, oh, some people choose it and some people don't. I think there's some factors that influence it. But I also think that, yes, I mean, obviously, perseverance and striving are good things. So, you know, in the book, I talk about whether there's free will and so on. And that's a, that's a question about causality, what causes behavior. But whatever causes behavior, I think that humans are striving beings. And we should want to better ourselves. We should want to improve ourselves and so on. So working hard, obviously, uh, all things being equal, is a, a good idea. I mean, of course, you can't always hold everything constant and say all things are equal. But, but you know, as a principle, yes, I mean, I think hard work is correlated with success to a certain degree. That being said, there are some things where, you know, this myth-making around self-help, it's like, okay, if I was born in, you know, one of the countries I do a lot of research in is Madagascar. And if I was born in Madagascar, my life chances would just, no matter how hard I worked, my life chances would be substantially lower because there's just a, a large number of barriers that no matter how talented or hardworking I was, the odds that I would have a successful life are just lower, right? I mean, f only 40% of the island has electricity. The average person's living on less than $2 a day. Like, you know, it's hard to become successful in that society. And so uh, I, I think that's one of those things where, we need to simultaneously say that hard work is a value to be promoted because good for society, but also that we overplay the degree to which people deserve success. And the corollary of that, which I think is very comforting, is we also overplay the degree to which people deserve blame for not succeeding. And I think a lot of us could, you know, let ourselves off the hook a little bit more and understand that our lives are partly 
you know, directed by our actions, but partly they're not. And partly we can't control that. And, and so, you know, this sort of culture in which individualism and self-help ideas reign supreme creates a lot of misery that I think is unnecessary because people internalize um, setbacks and failures as though it's exclusively their fault. And it's not true. Yeah, I asked about hard work because I don't know how much time you spend on the internet. I hope you you spend less time than I do there because there's this um, soul-sucking, pervasive hustle culture thing going on, which tells you that you need to squeeze every last ounce of sweat out of your body and, you know, constantly striving to achieve more. And if you do, you're going to get rich and successful. And um, it seems that it's quite successful and it terrifies me. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the, um, you know, this, this is some of the philosophy in the book. I mean, one of the things that was fun about writing this book was that I didn't know exactly where it was going to take me. And, you know, I start by thinking about ideas from evolutionary biology and chaos theory and some of my own social research. And all of a sudden I, I end up with philosophy because it starts to sort of challenge some of the questions and basic assumptions that we have about why our lives are meaningful and so on. And this is one of the areas, right, where I think I look around and I, 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 I'm guilty of this myself, right? Like where I look at like February of 2020 and I was, you know, I have like a, a huge number of checklists on my laptop, right? It's like my to-do list of February 2020 and then I have like another one two weeks later and so on. And, and it's sort of constantly being updated and every day is just this check, what I call a checklist existence. And a lot of it's for these sort of arbitrary metrics about what we deem as successful, and I think one of the things that starts to be internalized when you think about the way that I think the world actually works, which is swayed by a lot of these contingent chance, you know, chaotic events, is you start to think a little bit less about the importance of our lives in, firm, in terms of these metrics that were sold as the sort of virtues of a good life. And, you know, it, it, was, it was a fun, you know, this is, I don't write about this personally in the book, but from a personal perspective, it was, it was a really interesting thing writing this because I started living differently as I uh, researched and wrote things that changed my worldview, where, you know, a lot of the writing that I did was after I walked my dog and I would, I would go out into nature and I would just jettison that online culture and just, you know, be in the moment and think about things and reflect on things and then come home and write. And I realized that that made me way happier. Right? <laughs> so I, I stopped doing a lot of stuff that made me less happy. And I started spending a lot more time walking my dog, you know, and I, I have no idea how much this will hurt me, you know, professionally or financially or whatever, but I'm happier. And so I, I think it was one of those, like, this has never happened to me in writing a book before, right? Like all my other books, I was sort of broadcasting what I thought to be true in, in written form. And in Fluke, I was like, learning how I thought about the world in a totally different way as I was writing it and then like adjusting my lifestyle accordingly, which was super interesting. And, and is why it's like the, the most fun thing I've ever worked on and the most rewarding thing I've ever worked on in my life. How do we make sure that it lasts? Because I also have those moments sometimes. And it's quite clear that I'm happier as well when I'm not spending all of my time scrolling endlessly through YouTube shorts and TikToks and stuff like this, but then it sucks me right back in. I'm sorry that I'm pursuing this self-help sort of line of questioning, no, but no, I'm no, genuinely, I mean, genuinely I, curious I, how to make it stick, you know? Yeah, if you I, know we're I, happier, but we keep going back. Yeah, and I don't I don't have all the answers. I mean, I still spend way too much time on my phone and so on, yeah. and way too much time on social media. So I, I haven't cracked the case completely. I mean, what, what I would say though, is that it's just, 
what I hope happens, and this is, you know, when I was writing this, I was hoping that people would just think more reflectively about these things. And, you know, if, if they agree with me on some of the aspects about the worldview stuff, it starts to become immediately apparent how illogical it is to live this sort of checklist existence and also the passivity that comes with sort of, you know, scrolling, doom scrolling through, through things on the internet. Um, because I think, you know, we've, we've just sort of, we've lost sight of some of the things that make us human. And one of those things is just being present in the moment, interacting with people around you and enjoying life. Right. <laughs> and I think, you know, th this is the stuff where I, I worried and I, you know, I was very careful in how I tried to write this. Some people will, will read fluke and feel nihilistic, I think, because, um, They'll, they'll, they'll misinterpret what I'm saying, I think, as nothing matters, right? Because we're all, we're not in control and all these cosmic flukes and so on that we can't, you know, bend to our whims are diverting our trajectories all the time, et cetera. I, I think the exact opposite of that, which is that when you think about the world this way, every moment that you have is affecting the future, not just of your life, but also quite literally the future of which people get born and, you know, how other people live their life and so on. And that creates a mentality where it's, you know, very much live in the moment, enjoy the moments you have. And I think, you know, the other thing that's quite obvious cliche advice, but it's just sort of like, I think about the things that I'm going to care about when I'm on my deathbed, whenever that will be, it's, it's not going to be, you know, a lot of objects. So I, I, this is at odds with basically the way that society is set up. I mean, society is set up with dopamine hits on the internet, which are basically addictive and they cause you to keep coming back, as you say. But it's also set up to tell you that the way to live a successful life is to be rich and to buy things. And so, you know, I think there's some of these things which are, you know, when you think about the there's some ideas in the book about evolutionary psychology and so on. And, you know, evolutionary psychology is talking about how our minds, you know, basically were shaped for a very, very different world from the one we now inhabit. And I think one of the lessons of that is, you know, let, let's try to live 10 or 15% more like our, our primitive ancestors, which means, you know, going out in nature, spending time with people, not constantly checking our watches to try to figure out what the next scheduling commitment is. And so, I mean, you know, some of these things are impossible to to avoid completely. Obviously, you have to live in the real world. Uh, we can't all be hermits in a, in a, you know, sort of commune or whatever. But I, I, I do think there is, um, you know, some degree of self-reflection that can be used to overcome. And this is where I, you know, I, I, I'm... Every time you write a book, you hope people send you certain kinds of emails. One of the emails that I hope people send me after reading this book is exactly what you said at the opening of the show, that it made them think about their lives differently, and they therefore are living a happier existence. And that's, that's going to be totally different from how I will adapt to these ideas, right? But I hope that everyone internalizes uh, a challenge to their worldview in a slightly different way that makes them live a more deliberate and enjoyable life. Speaking of evolutionary psychology, one of the most jarring chapters in your book for me is the one where you explain why by design we are creatures who constantly look for patterns and who can't really make sense of things unless they relate to us in the version of a story. How can we ever get over this need for a narrative every time we look at the world if we are built this way, essentially? Well, the short answer is we can't. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's I have, done. There's, there's a footnote in Fluke where I say, look, I'm going to tell you all this stuff about how narrative bias exists and how our, our minds... Right. And then you give us, us right. a bunch of stories. Yeah, but I have to, right? Because the only right. way to convey meaning. Um, there's no way to do it. I don't, I don't think it's bad either. I mean, I think I, I think there are... There are there's, there's an importance in acknowledging this, right? So what, what I, the reason I bring this in is because I say 
the reason why we don't appreciate or acknowledge the randomness that does divert our lives and the chance and contingent events uh, that, that shape our existence and our societies is precisely because the processing units we have to explore the worlds have evolved to write out the noise and focus on the pattern. And the reason for that, I mean, it's very simple to understand, right? So yeah. if you hear a bit of uh, rustling in the grasses in prehistoric earth you know, as the early humans, and you think, oh, that used to correlate in the past with a saber-toothed tiger being in the, in, the, in the grass, then that pattern of cause and effect saves your life because you know to avoid something. Now, it's not very costly if the rustling in the grass turns out to be nothing. It's very costly if you dismiss the rustling in the grass and it turns out to be a saber-toothed tiger, right? So th through survival and who gets to pass their genes on, we've basically been honed to oversensitize ourselves to patterns. Now, that's very, very good a lot of the time because it basically means that we learn really quickly from past events and avoid catastrophe when we have an experience that's use, you know, useful to learn from. What it also does is it means that when things are truly unconnected, we still connect them. And this is where we you know, write stories. And I have in, in, in that chapter, there's a very short story of six words um, that when I say it, everyone will conjure up the same images. It says, a tiger, a hunter, a tiger, right? And almost everybody has the same sort of narrative stitched together from those six words. There's no reason why they have to be related. It could be two different tigers in totally different places. The hunter you know, might be eating a sandwich a thousand miles away. We don't know. But everybody sort of assumes... What has happened is the tiger has come, the hunters arrived, the tiger has eaten the hunter or mauled him or whatever. And also, you know, very often in our in our minds, we tell we have you know imaginings that are connected to these um, seemingly un you know unconnected uh, stories. And so, this innate aspect of us is one that we shouldn't necessarily shy away from. We should just understand that it is causing us to misunderstand the world sometimes. So, whenever there's a blank, our mind has to fill it up. And make a perfect, I mean, a sensible kind of story out of it, right? Like, with yeah, the and I mean, you know, like, like I see, it's the same thing. There, there's this idea, you know, everything happens for a reason, and that is narrative bias incarnate, right? I mean, it's not true. Not everything happens for a reason. Why, you know, I mean, if you're a believer, you might, you might think there's a grand plan to all these things. But, you know, from my perspective, when I think about like the dinosaurs getting wiped out by the asteroid. The best thing that physics has, the best grasp of that event that physics has at the moment is that there was an oscillation in the Oort cloud in the distant reaches of space, which flung this asteroid out that wiped out the dinosaurs. I don't think there was a reason for that. I think it was sort of just a random thing that happened in space. So, you know, however, whenever something happens, you know, we, we sort of stitch the narrative backwards. Oh, well, the reason why this happened was because humans were supposed to exist. And, you know, religion has that as a, as a mentality. So, you know, of course, if people believe those things, then, then there is a cosmic purpose to all these things. My worldview is, is, is that there isn't. And so therefore, what I think is important to think, whether you believe in a grand purpose or not, what I do think is, is, is a universal truth is that we do overemphasize the patterns in explaining social change in ways that are potentially harmful, right? Because if we think that the reason why X happened was Y, then what we're always going to do is try to learn from that. And sometimes randomness does create diversions of, of you know, effects and so on. So, you know, like the Arab Spring is a great example of this, where you've got a, you know, a, a, a random man who sells vegetables in the middle of Tunisia. 
gets just totally fed up with life and lights himself on fire. And uprisings start in, what, 10 countries in the span of a few months and multiple regimes collapse. And, you know, who knows what would have happened if he didn't light himself on fire? I don't know. But, like, our societies can be drastically changed by very comparatively small events. And, you know, I think there's a, a tendency to always emphasize the order, the sort of what I call the storybook reality in which everything is a neat and tidy progression. And I think if you think about the world differently, um, you start to appreciate that the narrative bias is potentially useful for navigating the world, but fundamentally untrue, <laughs> which is important to note. Are conspiracy theories the ultimate manifestation of this desire to see the world as ordered uh, you know, by simple, rational cause and effect model, because as ridiculous as they usually sound, at least someone, even if it's a shadowy cabal, is driving the whole thing. Yeah. And so so people, there, there are two realms that are particularly prone to narrative bias on steroids. One of them is negative news, right? So what I mean by that is you get told that you have a cancer diagnosis, which, you know, God forbid, when people get that, it's a terrible, terrible moment in their lives. And it's really difficult to, to, to just believe it just happened. There was no reason, right? So when, when really bad things happen to people, narrative bias kicks in to overdrive. And this is also true when we lose jobs or when people break up with us and so on. Um, so so negative, negative events are very difficult to explain without narrative. Positive events, people are willing to accept random chance. You know, very few lottery winners... I mean, some of them do, but 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 it's it's less likely that a lottery winner will come up with this grand story about how exactly this was meant to happen. Um, we're more willing to accept just random chance for positive events. Now, conspiracy theories are a different uh, realm where they're prone to what's called magnitude bias, and I think this is you know there's a lot of discourse about conspiracy theories. I think there's there's a simpler explanation which Jonathan Gottschalk, uh, a, a great writer and scholar, has has you know uh, come up with where he says, look, the problem is that conspiracy theories always have one hell of a good story. And we are prone to latching well, on stories. Sometimes yeah. even the story is crap. That's true. That, that is true. But but often, often you know, like, like QAnon is a crazy, crazy story. I mean, it's for those who are unfamiliar, I mean, it's this idea that the Democratic Party is somehow taken over by satanic, you know, um, a cabal of, of pedophiles who have these secret meetings and run the world and so on totally crazy. But, you know, I mean, you could see this as some sort of sci-fi movie or something like that. And the, the, the plot would be like interesting. So the point that Gottschall is making is like, you're telling the way you debunk a conspiracy theory is, okay, here's this story that you've been told. Now, what we're going to tell you is there's no story. Nothing's going on. And for the storytelling- A bit anticlimactic. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And he has this phrase, he, you know, he wrote this book called The Storytelling Animal. And he says, we're a storytelling animal. Telling the story, telling animal, there's no story, is just a losing battle, right? So that's part one. Part two is magnitude bias. And this is, you know, the classic example of this that comes up in the research that I've read is uh, Princess Diana's death. So, you know, I believe that what happened is what happened, right? That she was trying to outrun the paparazzi and they sped in their car and they crashed. But this seems like a very sort of small cause for what was believed to be, you know, a, a very large political event, at least in Britain and so on. And so magnitude bias is where people say something important happened. There must have been an important cause. There must have been an action that was driving this. And this is where, amazingly, in the conspiracy theory literature, you have people who will say yes to the following two premises, that A, Princess Diana is still alive, 
and B, that the government killed her, right? And the reason they're willing to do those obviously uh, incompatible ideas is because they're more willing to accept there was something that happened that was behind the scenes than that there was nothing. It was just this sort of arbitrary accident. Uh, we're, we're allergic to accidental explanations. And this, you know, Gottschall comes up, I wrote this in Fluke, but Gottschall comes up with this uh, when he's describing how fiction works, right? Like he has this brilliant line, I, I quoted it in the book, where he says, you know, we don't know how the story of Harry Potter is going to end when we're reading the book. We're pretty sure though, that what's not going to happen is Voldemort is going to slip on a banana peel and die, right? Like, because <laughs> we just wouldn't deal with that very well. It's like you read these seven books and then all of a sudden this accident happens and it's like, oh, okay, that's it. And the reason why we wouldn't accept that is because we we are totally, totally allergic to explanations that are just like, whoops. And yet the world is full of oops moments uh, that are that are important. Your Princess Diana story made me think about Tupac's death uh, because I'm a big hip hop fan. Mm. And as a teenager, I remember how we had the same uh, reaction to his death. We were like, oh, somebody else killed him. It was a big conspiracy. But then other days we would just be like, no, he's in Cuba. He's still alive. You know, he's hiding in Cuba. So <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense. It's a way to make sense of a tragic and unforeseen right. event. Right. right? So it's, it's totally rational in that, in that sense of how to cope with it. I hosted an ex-truther on this podcast recently. His name is Brent Lee. He's a fantastic guy, super smart. He's from the UK. He used to be in the rabbit hole, as he calls it, for 15 years. He has a podcast now where he's breaking down all of these various conspiracy theories uh, with a critical eye, trying to pull other people out of them. And he very vividly described the moment he fell for conspiracy theories. Um, his father was a Vietnam war veteran suffering from PTSD, which turned Brett into a staunch pacifist. And as a staunch pacifist, he wondered why wars keep happening around the world. It kept bothering him until he watched a series of videos about how 9-11 was an inside job and how all of these conflicts are actually orchestrated somewhere in the background, of course. He said that everything suddenly made sense. He didn't have to question anymore, you know, and that was it. It's very, it's very similar to what you described. We need to fill in the, the the blank space with something that makes sense. Yeah, this is. I mean, it's a complete classic, and it's also. I mean, if you, I've studied conspiracy theories a little bit in my prior work as well, and you know, the, the other thing, in addition to the storytelling aspect, it's also the sense of belonging, and this right. this relates to questions around fluke too, because I think there's sort of this this universal search for meaning in life, and uh, you know, I I think that my belief on this is that there is that, that I am sort of an accident, right? I mean, I tell, I tell a story early on in the, in the book about how I'm the byproduct of uh, a mass murder basically in 1905. So I am an accidental being, right? I mean, there's this, if this hadn't happened, uh, I wouldn't be alive. And so when you think that way, you think, okay, well um, maybe, maybe my life is sort of arbitrary, the fact that I exist. And again, that, that tempts people towards nihilism. I think the, uh, the alternative view is that you're you're part of something enormous, which is humanity. You're part of a community. You're constantly affecting other people's lives, and so you know that sense of alienation that lots of people have in modern society is tied to the idea that we ha we talked about previously: the atomization of individual belief that you're, you're the sort of independent agent, not part of a larger system uh, that controls everything, controls your life, and and that I think is really really pervasive in modern life, which is feeding into this conspiracism. Because what lots of people do when they go down the rabbit hole is they find a community of similar believers who 
bond really qu quickly because they share the same narrative and they feel like they're part of the same community. So you, you, you basically are putting, I mean, this is why it's so difficult to get people out of these communities is because first off, you're telling the storytelling animal, there's no story. When, when all of a sudden this new information has suddenly made sense of a very complex world for them in a very simple narrative. And then secondly, you have the social glue of the community in a, for a people who are often very socially isolated um, and find themselves connected to these people. You know, and I, I think this aspect of the simplicity of the story as well, I mean, what you're describing with that, oh, here's the explanation for all wars. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, actually, the real explanation is that there's 8 billion people in extraordinarily complex, uh, you know, systems that we call the international relations, you know, world. And there's this drastic, you know, there's this long history of grievances and injustices and there's actions and greed and, you know, there's a million things happening. And our brains are not cut out to process a million things because our brains evolved in a world that had very simple cause and effect patterns, right? I mean, that's the thing that I think is, is worth remembering is it, if you took the whole world history, right, uh, all of humanity's history, rather, and you put it into a 24-hour timescale, 23 hours and three minutes would be hunter-gatherers. So our brains were shaped almost exclusively by a period in which the complexity of society was not big. It was, it was basically small groups of 80 to 100 people who basically foraged around for food and tried to kill animals to survive. And so in those worlds, you don't have to understand geopolitics. You don't have to understand economics, right? You don't have to understand complexity of 8 billion people interacting. And our brains are just not equipped to that. So when you give people, oh, here's this really straightforward X to Y explanation, this storybook reality I talk about, it's seductive. And our brains are fundamentally honed to trick us. And so, you know, that that's the realm where um, I, I think those experiences where people talk about how they were duped, I hope more people incorporate that aspect of, of storytelling because it does resonate with people to understand, hold on, you're just being sold a good story. And that's, you know, sometimes it's hard to avoid, but like you just do have to think a little bit deeper. Uh, is this story too neat to be true? And I think almost all uh, of the time, the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, we talked about our need for storytelling. Where does this need for control that we all feel on a personal and societal level feature in all this? Yeah, well, I mean, when people think about their own lives, they, they, they write stories as well, right? I mean, people have a narrative arc to how they think they got to where they are today. Now, I mean, the, the point that I make is that narrative arc is not a bad one. It's often good to be self-reflective and so on. Um, but there's two things I would say about it. First off, the narrative arc is wrong. And I don't mean this to, to sort of belittle people's stories about their lives. I mean, I have a story about my life I think about internally. I also believe that I'm wrong about my story because... There's a series of invisible things that I am not aware of that totally diverted the trajectory of my life. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell for your, your listeners and viewers um, just in more detail what I alluded to a second ago with that uh, mass yeah. murder story. So it's 1905 in Wisconsin. This woman uh, has four young children. She snaps and uh, probably has postpartum depression. That's what you'd call it today, but it's 1905, right. so they don't know about this. So, uh, so she basically snaps and, and kills her four kids and then kills herself. And her husband comes home and finds the whole family murdered. And uh, this is my great-grandfather's first wife. And so uh, he remarries to my great-grandmother, and the only reason I exist is that lineage that was formed as a result of this horrible you know, mass murder of children. Now, the reason I tell that story in the context of your question is because I was totally unaware of this until my dad told me about it when I was in my 20s, right? And I might've been unaware of it forever, 
But this is an important part of my life story because the origin of my existence is quite clearly predicated on this event. Um, the other thing that is important about this is that this means that they're you know, often le way less dramatic. There's all these things where our lives could have unfolded very differently. You know, the snooze button effect I, I, I describe, I coined that term in the book, where we hit the snooze button or don't, and our lives do unfold differently, right? We meet different people that day. We pa cross paths with someone different. Now, maybe it doesn't happen that day, but maybe down the line, because we bumped into someone at the coffee shop after having hit the snooze button, they introduce us to somebody else and there's this ripple effect and so on, right? So these invisible pivots in our lives are ones that we never can put into our stories because we simply don't know they exist. And so it's impossible to write them into our histories. But I also think, you know, the, the other idea that I, I bring up in the book, this is the philosophical implication of this, is that, and I think, you know, personally, I, people disagree about this with me when I've talked to them, but I, I find this really moving and beautiful. If you believe that everything is interconnected, right, and that every action has an unforeseen but important reaction, then the best and worst moments of your life are inextricably linked. And the reason I, the reason, you know, I came to this conclusion is because everything that is good in my life, every positive impact I've had, every happy moment, wouldn't exist unless four children were murdered in Wisconsin in 1905. Now, that is, a, that is quite literally true. It's, it, it's, it's something that's very odd to say that way, right? And it doesn't mean that we should go out and kill bit. people, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, what, 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 it mean, what it means is that you cannot foresee the ripple effects of your actions. Now, because we can't foresee them, you should live an ethical and decent life. You shouldn't murder people and so on. It's not to say there's, oh, there's a good, good, good effect to this. But it's to say that in the span of our own lives, every moment that I've had that has felt the worst possible moment I've ever had is directly causing in the future my best moment. And like the thing that's interesting about this is like, I think this is actually a scientific fact, right? <laughs> like if, if you talk to physicists or you talk to people who study chaos theory and so on, like they're like, yeah, obviously. But like this isn't talked about by people who study society because we try to model society into these neat and tidy worlds of, of you know, here's five variables that cause things. Or we try to talk about the self-help mentality in our own lives, which is like, oh, if you just change these three things, you'll be happy. But actually the way the reality operates is that we're in this constantly interconnected unbroken thread of life where, you know, one stitch of the thread at a moment that was horrific for us, if you undid that, it would also undo the good moments in your life. It's not to say you wouldn't have good moments. They would just be different, right? So it's, it's not to say like, oh, our lives would be every single moment, our lives would be radically different. No, that's not necessarily true. There's a certain level of order in our lives, but they would be different somehow. And we don't know how that would be, sometimes more profound, sometimes less profound. Uh, but I, I do think the philosophical implications of that are really arresting when you think about them, because when I have, you know, terrible moments, uh, they are the cause of, of, of my later happiness. And if they weren't, then my, my life would be different. Which also means trying to control every single aspect of your life in every single moment is futile and would also make you feel like you're, you're failing, basically. Yeah. Right. So this is, this is, it was interesting. I, I, I talked about this with some people who were a bit skeptical and were more sort of, well, like, how do we live this way? Right. And I, I said, look, there's, there's a, there's a way to break this down between the sort of useful pragmatic illusion and the underlying reality. So the underlying reality, which is, you know, I think is basically just physics is that yes, quite literally you are sort of along for the ride in some ways, right? There are some things that you can't control and, and you're sort of just like, you know, along for the ride. Now, pragmatically, it's useful 
to live with the illusion that that's not true because it, it causes us to strive more. It causes us to be more proactive. And that often does yield good results. Now, because of my views on free will and so on, I think we are still along for the ride even when we strive. But my, my point here is that I think that you can have philosophical implications for the sort of way that reality operates where, yeah, you have a lot less control than you think you do. And there can still be a useful illusion of some level of control. Now, I say some level because the problem is that when you start to get hubris that's derived from the fact that, you know, a lot of our world is run on models. Uh, I, I, like when you think about social science, like economics, politics, a lot of it is run on models. And we've internalized those models as being the way the world works. So it's like, oh, if we just tweak this one thing, then this will happen. And it, it, it provides a sort of funhouse mirror version of reality that, that gives us the illusion of control um, where, you know, you just need to tweak these three variables and then everything will be fine. And so I think overconfidence in control can be dangerous. Uh, I think this is the kind of stuff that gets us into wars and, and financial breakdowns and so on. So, you know, I, I think there's a ha happy medium here. I think for me, what I do is I think, okay, yeah, like I, I have a lot less control than I think I do. Do I still wake up and try? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, of course I do. Now, do can I control whether Fluke will be a bestseller? No, I can't. Right? Uh, like I and, and I, you know, I talked to a publicist and like I talked to my publisher and you know we try, but like I also recommend like recognize that, like there's just some things that happen. And you know, did you you know you've all know Hariri you know, wrote Sapiens sold like a billion copies. I mean. I, why did that happen? I don't know. He doesn't know. Right? I mean, that's the thing is like he couldn't recreate that if he tried. And I think there's some aspects of this where um, you just have to accept the limits of your control mm. of the world and also internalize that you are affecting the world all the time, which I think is quite empowering. This makes me think of a terrifying interview I saw recently. There's this tech millionaire who's completely obsessed with longevity. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. His name is Brian Johnson. I Googled him just before the interview. And you he actually looks a little bit like a vampire, which is slightly ironic. <laughs> this guy's entire life is devoted to reverse aging. So far, so good, right? But the frightening thing is, uh, in the video, I was listening to the guy describe his day-to-day -day life. And every single day, he eats the same meal at the exact same time. He doesn't date because he's busy collecting his stool sample six times a day. He takes exactly 111 pills every day. He even has a tiny jet pack attached to his penis to monitor his nighttime erections. So in the service of ultimate control, he basically eliminated every single thing that brings any joy in life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guy's intent on not creating any new memories until the day he dies, which for me is the opposite of living. And this yeah. kind of attitude is now spreading like wildfire everywhere. I mean, like you said, it's probably definitely a good idea to take care of yourself, but why are we so intent on banishing every bit of spontaneity and chance from our lives? Yeah, and I, you know, this is the kind of thing where I think it's just, you know, there, there, there's, there's a question that I that is sort of underlying a lot of fluke, which is what are humans for, right? And I don't think humans are just to exist. I, I don't. I don't think that the reason we're on the planet. I, I, first off, I mean, I think that we are, you know, sort of an evolutionary accident in a lot of ways. But if there was a reason, I do not think it is just to prolong existence. I think that we have, you know, as, as a species, we have some tools and gifts that are unbelievable. I mean, you know, the, the sort of joys and extremes of emotion and connection we can find with other people is really extraordinary. 
maximizing that is, you know, if there is a meaning for life, I, I, I am confident it will be derived from our interactions with other people, not in our, <laughs> the jetpack you described or in, you know, the pills you take to have the maximum uh, longevity. And I think it's the, 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 the example you use is an astute one because it's, it's the ultimate example of someone who has mistaken the sort of, uh, you know, purpose or, or, or joy of life um, for, for, for exactly what it's not in my view. I mean, other people have different views on this, but I, but I, my, my idea here is I, I just think, you know, we, we have this small time on the planet and you want to make the most of it. And it's not just to prolong it. Uh, I, I want to live a long life. Don't get me wrong. Right. I mean, everyone do, yeah. does. Right. But I want to live a good life. And right. I would much rather, I would much rather live a good, but slightly shorter life than a extremely long, but miserable existence. And I think that's what that guy is drifting towards. Last question. Where does a sense of humor feature in all this? Some of the hardest I've laughed, which means some of the best times I had, were acknowledging the fact that we live in a crazy random existence in a way within an accidental fluke, which is the universe in a funny way, kind of. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I, I love that. I haven't, I haven't been asked that question about this, this book. Um, and I love that question because I think, you know, it makes you take life a little bit less seriously and savor just sort of the joy of it when you think like, I mean, you know, again, believers will have a different take on this, but I sort of do think like, look, I'm, I'm just sort of this accident that emerged from 13.8 billion years of the universe existing. And all of a sudden, boom, here I am. Why? I don't know. There's a whole bunch of random stuff that happened. I mean, an asteroid hit the planet and, you know, the dinosaurs died and there's all these evolutionary things that happened that could have gone otherwise. And then, you know, there's all these people. And before that, you know, chimpanzee-like creatures that mated. And then, you know, eventually here I am. And when you start to think that way, you think, that's sort of funny. <laughs> it's sort of, sort of weird that I'm here. Um, and and so, you, you, you know, this stuff where you, like, I, I, I recently wrote this piece um, on my newsletter where I was, I included the the pale blue dot image, which is that image that was taken of the earth from 3.7 yeah. billion miles away. And we're this little tiny pixel <laughs> in the blackness of space. And when you start to think that way, you're like, yeah, like maybe it doesn't matter if I'm like slightly down the social hierarchy today from like my friend who like makes $10,000 more than me because like literally we're this, this little pixel in space. And, you know, some people find that, as I say, that it's the, it's two sides of the same coin. It's either, oh, there's this nihilism that's associated with this. Oh, my gosh, like we're in this tiny little pixel. I think it's actually sort of it's just liberating. It's like, OK, if we're this cosmic accident, what should I do with my time? I don't know. I should like spend it with people I like and like do fun stuff and enjoy things and try to make other people happy. Um, and, you know, th th there's a lot of philosophy that's, that's basically that simple. <laughs> so uh, this sort of arbitrary accident stuff. I mean, if you think that everything happens for a reason, then you sort of, everything has to be exactly right. You know, you have to constantly chase control and so on. Um, I think if you have a, a more appreciation for the chaos of life, it, it liberates us to live. And that's, um, yeah, uh, as, as you say, I think it's a moment where sometimes you can just sort of sit back and just laugh and say, well, you know, there's nothing I could do. I sort of ended up in this position. I'm not sure why, <laughs> but let's just enjoy the ride. You just mentioned chaos. The very last quick question. Sure. I'm a huge pop culture fanatic. Hmm. Um, have you seen The Dark Knight? I have, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the Joker says, I'm an agent of chaos. Hmm. And there's one thing about chaos. It's fair. Would you agree with that statement? 
Well, I don't, I, I don't think it's fair in the sense that it, it creates extremely unequal outcomes that are totally <laughs> arbitrary. Right. I think it's fair in the sense that it affects all of us, right? So uh, the, the lack of control uh, is one where, you know, it, it is universal in my opinion. We're all subject to the forces of chaos. Um, but I think also, you know, that, that, that chaos can produce extremely, I mean, the, you know, one of the things that's weird, that's weird to think about is like, there literally is someone who is the unluckiest person in the world. I don't know who it is. But there is someone out there who's literally the unluckiest person. By, by definition, there's also someone who's the luckiest person. So there's, you know, there's unfairness in chance. But uh, we are all subjects to its forces. I, I do think we're all sort of playthings of lots of these arbitrary and accidental, accidental forces. And that is a universal that is fair. Brian, uh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. I can't recommend Fluke enough. Uh, when is it out and where can people get it? Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's out January 23rd in the US and February 1st in the UK. So somewhere around those dates, anywhere in the world, probably. And uh, you can get it wherever books are sold. All right. Do you have any social media where people can follow your work? I do indeed. So I've got a newsletter uh, called The Garden of Forking Paths, uh, which is an idea that's central to Fluke, um, which you can sign up for for free. And then I also have a Twitter account that I use, which is just my name, uh, Brian Kloss, which is spelled K-L-A-A-S. All right. Thanks again. This was a riot. Thank you. Oi. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe and follow on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. As always, eternal glory and gratitude to my producers who are supporting this show on Patreon, the kings and queens, Gordon, Yurechuk, Lorenzo, Veronica, Mila, Carmen, and Taichi. Without you, this pot would not have been possible at all. If you'd like to become a certified Tovarish or Tovarishica of the show too, head to Patreon, find Smart Cookies podcast on there and uh, become one. It's as simple as that. Thank you.